I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die historic on the Fury Road. Mad Max Minute proving that in the old world everyone had a show in Mad Max Fury Road one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 83, which begins with Max fading to black so we can jump forward a few hours. And it ends with the Keeper of the Seeds helping the Dag plan a gender reveal party. (laughs) I gotta say I love that line about everybody having a show. Because, yeah, everybody has a show. Hold up. Yes, we haven't gotten to the nighttime yet. We're still stuck on three seconds of Max just sitting in the war rig, looking over the dunes at Furiosa, shouting off into the universe. And I have a sneaking suspicion that Max is having a bit of a personal flashback to minute 75 of the original Mad Max. Do you remember minute 75? Really? You're going to ask me that? No. I know. It's unfair because I would look you dead in the face and say, no, absolutely. I do not remember that minute because it was minute 75 of the first movie. Yeah. No, I don't remember. But that is the minute where Max has his own moment where he's running along and he drops to his knees and he shouts out to the universe in pain, anguish and misery. Because that is the minute where Max reaches Jesse's body in the middle of the road. He is looking at her very knowingly, sympathetically. No, empathetically. Yeah. Max has not had a lot of practice in recent, I would say, years of being empathetic with another person. But I think it would be hard for him to look at this situation that Furiosa is going to and not feel something. Yeah, I think we've mentioned it before that of his female counterparts that we have noted in the series, aside from Jesse, of course, Furiosa is the most like him, the most his peer. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely showing here. They have similar life experiences, kind of in a different order. And he has already gone through his absolute tragedy. That she is going through now. And what really sells it in this opening three seconds is Tom Hardy's eyes. They're so sad. Those are what are selling the emotion to me as a viewer. Absolutely. And that's why Tom Hardy was a fantastic pick to replace Mel Gibson. Hmm. He has that same quality about him that Mel Gibson has of facial acting and eye acting especially. And then we fade to black. The fade happens at 3 seconds, 20 frames, and we don't come back out of it until round about 5 seconds. So, solid 2 seconds of black, which seems like the perfect time to meet another one of our Vuvolini. Excellent. So, the Vuvolini that I want to talk about today is Antoinette Kellerman. If you're looking at the minute, you want to go to about second 35 of this minute, and you'll see her sitting between Jillian and the Valkyrie. She's the one with curly white hair that was like, well, what about the men? Ah, okay. So that's who I'm talking about now. Antoinette Kellerman is best known for her role here in Mad Max Fury Road. She was in 
Divliende Springbocky in 2018. She was in Paradis in 1994 and Arsenal in 2002. Those names sound a little off because A, I don't know how to pronounce things, and B, because Antoinette Kellerman was born in 1952 in Belleville, Western Cape, South Africa, and she is bilingual in both English and Afrikaans and studied at the University of Stellenbosch Drama Department. So in August 2018, Serafina Magazine described Kellerman as a doyenne of South African theater, winning numerous awards for her work on radio, television, and on stage. She has worked for, now get this list, the Cape Performing Arts Board, the Southwest African Performing Arts Council, and the Performing Arts Council of Transvaal, as well as a variety of other companies. Since the demise of the Cape Performing Arts Board, she has worked closely with Marthinis Bassin and the Vlaze, Reese and Artapel's company. She became a teacher for Pretoria Technicon's Cape Branch around 2000, and in 2002 she joined the staff of the University of Stellenbosch Drama Department as a speech and acting teacher. That interview I mentioned from 2018 lists several of her awards for her work on stage. For instance, in 2008, she was honored by the South African Academy for Science and Arts for her contribution to South African theater. In 2010, she received several awards for her work on a one-woman show. She performed it in Afrikaans as Adi Broek Pass, which she also performed in English as Man to Man. She also has select credits including Die Melktrain, Stop Nie Mir, Kirne, uh, another one called Asim, and then Willem Anker's Samsa Majin and Hirdi Lewe by Carol Showman, which awarded her a Kana Award for Best Actress. I sincerely apologize to anybody from South Africa that may be listening because I took your language and I put it through a meat grinder. A for effort. <laughs> you tried. Her stage credits dwarf her film credits because she only has 19 on her imdb page which begin in 1979 17 of those are television productions or shorts one of them was an uncredited english language voiceover recording and then there's mad max fury road (laughs) so she is a actress she is an educator she is a multi-creative and as seraphina magazine described her a doyen of theater I feel a bit honored that she would take time out of her talented and accomplished life to do this relatively small part in Mad Max. If I've learned one thing in looking at the women that play the Vuvulini, they are all wildly overqualified (laughs) for these roles. There must have been something appealing about this movie specifically Perhaps it was the prominence of female roles and the message of independence and escaping your captors that perhaps drew these overqualified women to want to participate. Plus the opportunity to do what the Vuvulini do. These are not your typical role for women that are older. No, they are pretty badass. They're not playing grandmas. Basically, they're not May Swayze. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're not even Big Rebecca. Big Rebecca had to ride on the bus. Sure, the warrior woman, she got to do the cool thing fighting on the tanker, but Big Rebecca was relegated to the side vehicle. The Vuvulini 
are not content to sit in the bus while the tanker goes off in the other direction to lead the Humongous away. They would insist on being on the tanker, as we're going to see later on in this movie. Yes. As we fade in from that dip to black, we see that the war rig is parked off to the side and the Vuvulini have set themselves up a little camp for the evening. Do you think this is what they do? Or do you think they're doing this because they're here, it's nighttime, time to camp? And they have, like, a home base somewhere. I think they live nomadically. Yeah, I agree. And even if they don't live nomadically, they probably have a territory, a range that they cover. And that does seem more like their way to do things. What's the old saying from, I think it was Road Warrior, that only the mobile survived? Yeah, those mobile enough to scavenge... That's what it was. We're able to survive. Yeah. And the ones who couldn't, didn't. So it makes sense that they would flex that ability to move around a lot and use it to their advantage. Because they've got to find a new green place. Hopefully. It does seem to be their aim as we learn, I think in Friday's Minute, sort of. That also seems to be the way, kind of the, the rock riders I'm, I'm thinking about as well. They do seem to have a perhaps more defined territory of that canyon area. But do they have a home base? Do they have a central camp? Or do they just keep moving around? I don't know. With the rock riders, I can see them hanging around that one specific canyon. Because there probably aren't a lot of ways to pass through the mountains. So if there are people trying to go from one area to another, being bold enough to move around, then the rock riders would want to be able to keep an eye on that area. It would make sense to me for them to want to hang around that one spot, but still roam around the mountains. Like goats. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like goats. So with everybody camped for the night, we catch up with Toast and Cheeto, who are sitting there with Joy and Melita, and... One thing that stands out to me is that it looks like the Vuvulini have given a few more articles of clothing for the wives to wear. They've augmented the rags that they were wearing with other things like Cheeto's got a headband, Toast has a blanket around her shoulders. You know, they've outfitted them a little better than they were. The desert gets very cold at night. There's nothing around to hold in the solar heat, so it just goes away pretty quick. So they are not properly prepared. <laughs> and as they're sitting there looking at the night sky, a light twinkles by like a shooting star and Cheeto points it out. And Jillian is helpful enough to clarify that that's what you call a satellite. And Toast pipes up saying that Miss Giddy told them about those and that they used to bounce messages around the earth. So I looked up how many satellites there are orbiting the planet. Currently, according to the Index of Objects Launched into Outer Space maintained by the United States Office for Outer Space Affairs, or ANUSA, as <laughs> their anagram says, there were 4,987 satellites orbiting the planet at the start of 2019, which is an increase of 2.68% compared to the end of April 2018. The problem with things orbiting is that there's plenty of old, defunct, broken stuff up there. Not only, like, satellites that no longer work or have now broken into several pieces, but also, like, the debris from shuttle launches. 
all going in orbit. Mm. So this item that they see, it's not necessarily a satellite. It could be anything. Very true. Joy, in response to hearing Toast talk about messages bouncing around the Earth, she leans her head back and she almost wistfully says, shows. Everyone in the old world had a show, which is an ironic statement considering that all of the Vuvulini at one point in their career, <laughs> they were TV actresses. Yeah. I also find this an entertaining statement considering the advent of podcasting. This has never been a truer statement than right now in 2019. More people than ever have their own show, including us. I find it interesting that the Vuvulini use this term shows. The wives may not know what a show is. So I jumped on Google and I asked it, how many podcasts are there? This website, I'm looking at podcastinsights.com. It says a common question is how many podcasts are there? And most of the data out there is outdated, but we have an accurate method for determining the number of shows. And it's currently over 700,000. That is mind boggling to me. <laughs> that is absolutely mind boggling. And those 700,000 shows have produced over 29 million individual episodes. I was also thinking about the term show and what it means. We've already kind of defined it in our conversation here as a podcast is a show. Well, obviously, a TV episode is a show. And I know out West, at least, if not really kind of everywhere, but I've experienced it out West, that a movie is called a show. Now, I don't use show in that way. No. But I understand where they're coming from. I understand the colloquial term of calling a movie a show. I think that the Vuvulini would strictly refer to television when it comes to shows. Without looking it up, neither of us are qualified to say what Australians mean when they say show. I'm going to take a shot in the dark and say that it means television. That it only though. means television? Yeah. That it doesn't also mean movies? I mean, unless you're like an octogenarian, then you're like, I'm going to go to the picture shows. Yeah. Which, sure, the Vuvulini are older, but I don't think they would use that type of old-timey talk. Max never struck me as the kind of guy that would use that verbiage. Really? To go see a show? I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's that far out there to call a movie a show. Maybe. I don't We I, call a podcast a show and there's nothing showy about it. Yeah. You but, don't see a podcast. Yeah, but it sounds a lot better than, oh, we don't have a show, we have a listen. And does YouTube count as a show? Well, Series that, that publishes on YouTube. That all depends on how many episodes they do. So does a show imply some sort of frequency consistency repetition yes i think in order to be considered a show outside of the realm of strictly sticking to television you need to have a consistency and a format and a schedule that you stick to if you release 30 to 45 minute episodes three days a week monday through friday consistently for a span of time that could be construed as a show if you are on youtube and you release a 30 to 45 minute episode once a week on a specific day for a span of time that could be looked at as a show as long as it's all related in some way if you tie it together either in format or subject okay well i'd like to throw a wrench in your definition 
uh, there is a podcast show that both of us listen to. It's Roman Mars, and he has a show called What Trump Can Teach Us About Con Law. And it does not release on a regular schedule, but it's still a show. Mm, I don't know. I see that as a project. You know, it lacks the consistency of a show. It's more of a educational exploration. Like, I wouldn't look at something like Serial or My Favorite Murder or any of those other really popular true crime podcasts that are out there that release consistently once a week or once every two weeks and lump in what Trump can teach us about con law, especially in the same boat as 99% Invisible, which is the other Roman Mars show that he does. That one releases every week like clockwork with the same format, even though it's not the same subject. Like, yes, his political show is always the same subject, but it's so sporadic that I wouldn't necessarily lump it into the same exact category of 99% Invisible, the show. Okay, I think I can get behind that. I think I can get behind the idea that it's not so much a show as a project or a special. Mm. I think I can get behind that. Yeah. So, listeners, if you can share this episode with Roman Mars, maybe he'll get in contact with us and share his opinion on whether or not his podcasts are shows or not shows. Have fun with that. <laughs> Getting back into the minute, though. In this shot where they're talking about shows... Melita raises her hands towards her chin, and then we hear this plinking music. I think she's got a little music box, and that's the music that we hear as we go through these individual shots. We see Nux and Capable up on the tanker. We see Jillian, Antoinette, and the Valkyrie sitting off by their bikes, and then we see the rear shot of the four women we're looking at here initially. I like the idea of she's got a little music box. Because, of course, it harkens back to Road Warrior mm -hmm. with the music box. I do kind of wish it was a little bit more obvious because, honestly, I didn't catch that. We will get a chance to see the music box more prominently later. Okay, okay, that's I good. I think this is where it's originating from. Okay. Toast will have it later. I think Toast gets it from Melita. That's just my guess. But as we cut up to Nux Incapable sitting curled up at the end of the tanker, first, of course, adorable. The two of them are so cute. I guess so. <laughs> okay. Care to elaborate? I would care to elaborate. I think I like the idea of them better than I like the reality. The reality feels like a little much. Too quick, too cuddly, too, I don't know, just too much. On paper, the idea of capable meeting somebody that she forms a bond with, that sounds great. But actually seeing it happen and analyzing it happen, it feels much more like she is replacing Ang Herod with Nux. Well, yeah. And that's not healthy. And also this whole cuddliness thing. I don't know. You're not a cuddler. No, I'm not. So maybe really that's why I'm not appreciating their cuddliness is because... I'm not a cuddler. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm not a cuddler. How I know we've you lasted are. 10 years when you are not a cuddler and I'm a cuddler, I just don't understand it. It's because I love you <laughs> and I let you cuddle me as long as I can stand it. <laughs> it's called compromise. <laughs> I think it's appropriate 
that Nux and Capable are hanging out in this little VW bug because A, it's the first place they met, but also B, earlier we talked about the backstory of this part of the war rig. That was the car of the young couple that just left society to go live together in their own little campsite thing. And then the end of the world came and they died of radiation poisoning together in that car. So that is the love bug. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you just said that. I was with you until you called it the love bug. (laughs) That's a bridge too far. It really is. Okay, I like the symbolism of them being where that couple was found. I like that connection to the bug. I don't like the connection of, oh, this is where we met. This is our spot. Ew. <laughs> Gross. You're so no- <laughs> You don't appreciate the sentimentality of it. Rick, neither of us are romantics. That's very true. Anyway, I like that Joy calls those. I'm not I'm not sure what she's calling those. But I like that she says those are the planes of silence. Kind of indicating that the satellites are no longer bouncing shows. The internet, which is what they mean, they just don't know the term internet, has gone silent. Yeah, given the topic of conversation at hand, you know, everybody had a show. Do you think there's still someone out there sending shows? And then Joy says, who knows? And then she follows that right up with those are the planes of silence. The angle that we're looking at right now with them overlooking these salt flats in the distance Either she's talking about the satellites being the metaphorical planes of silence, or she is completely getting off the subject at hand and knows that everybody's looking out at those salt flats and she's naming them the planes of silence. It's one or the other. Either she's changing the subject mid-sentence or she's being (laughs) metaphorical. It's just weird. It's weird. I like the idea of the planes of silence and talking about the satellites, but... I think you're right. I think she is referring to what they're all looking at because they're all looking at it. Mm -hmm. We don't really get any sort of explanation because we cut over to the keeper of the seeds and the dag. They're standing off to the side and the dag is looking down at her stomach and she says out loud to herself, stay right where you are, little Joe, kind of lost its novelty out here now, which is kind of a knock on the Vuvalini, one of which is standing right next to her. This is the first time we've gotten the indication that the dag was pregnant. Yes, Because she's not showing at all. No, she's newly pregnant. Although she's pretty tall, so she can probably stay non-showing for a decent amount of time. Mm -hmm. Because she is so tall. So she was probably thinking, we'll go to the green place, it'll be really nice, I can have this baby. And now that she's gotten here and there is no green place, she's saying, don't be in such a rush to come out. The way she's speaking to her baby is more like the way you speak to a baby who is much closer to term rather than one that is so new that it's not really yet a baby. It's still cells. Gestating. Yeah. So it's a little weird. But, you know, they had to get it in there somehow. What do you think of her using the name Little Joe? I think that she is extremely aware of how that baby got there. And there is a very good reason why political fighting about abortions 
goes back and forth on the issue of rape because your feelings toward this child that are the product of rape are, first of all, a punishment to the mother being forced to carry this child that is a symbol, a product of something so violent. It can be hard. And I'm sure there's women out there who have done it, who have carried those children to term and raised them and love them just like any other kid. But there's plenty of women who can't do that. So I think she is very aware of how that baby got there. Mm -hmm. She doesn't seem to have a ton of affection or maybe not. I don't think affection is the right term. She doesn't seem to have a lot of optimism on the future of, yay, I'm having a baby. She seems more like Warlord Jr. Yeah. That's what I'm having. Like the Keeper of the Seeds, she's like, oh, you're having a baby? And the dad who's like, yeah, Warlord Jr. going to be so ugly. And then I love how the Keeper of the Seeds, she fires back with very succinctly, well, it could be a girl. And that statement alone, I think, completely turns the dag around on the whole baby thing. Yeah, it kind of made me wonder. I think we've mentioned it once or twice before that when the wives have babies, what's the relationship now between mother and baby? And does that matter if it's a boy or a girl? I don't think we brought that up. But if it's a boy, does it go off to be raised in a certain place in a certain way? And if it's a girl, then something else happens? It's entirely possible that the baby is born and then taken away and the mother never knows anything else about the child. Maybe the mother is lied to about the state of the child, the gender of the child, and they just don't get to know anything. Who knows? So she seems surprised by the possibility of having a girl. Yeah, I don't think she ever really considered that it would be a girl. The only thing that they hear is have my kid so it can be the next Immortan Joe. Right. And he never even entertains the possibility of the next Immortan Joe being Immortan Joanna, which is a shame. I mean, well, the whole thing is a shame, but there have been plenty of monarchies basically where the next heir is a woman and that woman has ruled and done a fantastic job and has been powerful and good for her people. It's not like women can't rule. But knowing Joe, he would want a male heir. Absolutely. Absolutely. The key about having a successful female monarch is you have to let them rule. Yeah. You can't have rules against that. But that look back from the dag to the keeper of the seeds is how we end this minute. When we come back on Friday, the dag is going to get a little critical of the whole wasteland diplomacy thing that the Vumalini do, and the Keeper of the Seeds will show off how she got her nickname. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 83 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.